The title of this message is The Apostolic Preaching of the Gospel and Missions. I want to begin by reading the first portion of the text that we will be looking into in this final session. Acts 13, beginning in verse 13, now Paul and his companions set out to sea from Paphos and came to Pergama in Pamphylia. Now John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now going on from Pergama, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, referring to Paul and his companions, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now those words, the word of exhortation refers to a sermon. It's used also at the end of the book of Hebrews. And what follows now, beginning in verse 16, is the first missionary sermon preached by the Apostle Paul that we have recorded in the book of Acts. So in some ways, this is like Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It was the first sermon of the church. It stands as a model sermon. An entire chapter is devoted to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost that we would see the importance of the preaching of the gospel. Well, this is now Paul's sermon, much like Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It is the first recorded sermon on the mission field by the apostle Paul. So now in verse 16, Paul stood up and motioned with his hands, saying, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And by the way, that's the way a preacher talks. He must be heard. He is not stroking his chin and saying, well, it seems to me. No, he speaks with boldness and confidence, and he says, you need to listen to what I have to say. Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted hand, He led them out from it. For a period of over forty years, He put up with them in the wilderness. When He had destroyed seven nations in the land of Cana, Canaan, He distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about four hundred and fifty years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. What the New Testament teaches about the work of missions is that it is primarily advanced by the preaching of the gospel. The New Testament knows nothing of any other form of missionary endeavor 
that has as its primary thrust the preaching of the Word of God and the planting of churches. All other missionary strategies are but secondary to what is primary, and that is the preaching of the Word of God. It is the proclamation of the gospel that is the tip of the spear in all missionary endeavor. There are many other missionary supporting strategies. There may be Bible translators, but it is ultimately to support the preaching of the Word of God in the language of the people and the planting of churches. There are pilots who fly Bible translators to remote places around the world, but it is for one ultimate purpose, that there would be the preaching of the Word of God in that place and the planting of churches. There may be professors who go to distant lands and train nationals in ministry on the mission field, but that is subservient to what is primary, which is the preaching of the Word of God. Men are to be taught and trained in seminaries so that they would go forth and proclaim the gospel and plant churches. The Puritans said that the preaching of the Word of God is the primary, ordinary means of grace. And that is what we find in the book of Acts. I often hear people say, we want to have a first century church. Great, that is a worthy goal in many ways. So read the book of Acts and what stands out to you. No, many things stand out, but what is primary, even a blind man could see it. It is the preaching of the Word of God. The apostles to a man were preachers. They were charged in the Great Commission by Jesus Christ Himself to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know that if you take the book of Acts that one out of every four verses, let me say that again, one out of every four verses is a sermon or the equivalent of a sermon with an entourage of people around. The title of the book of Acts was originally called the Acts of the Apostles. I think it is better titled the Preaching of the Apostles because that's what the book of Acts contains. In the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, there are no fewer than 19 major sermons or addresses that are recorded. There are eight sermons by Peter, one sermon by James, one sermon by Stephen, nine sermons by the Apostle Paul, five of which we would consider to be uh, an actual sermon for our defenses of the faith. Twenty-five percent of the book of Acts is the preaching of the apostles and their associates. No wonder the first century church was so powerful. It was literally baptized in the preaching of the Word of God. And yet today, tragically, There is so little preaching in churches here 
and there is so little preaching abroad. In church today, we have canceled Wednesday night preaching. We have canceled Sunday night preaching. We have shortened Sunday morning preaching. Bible conferences are but a thing of the past. Is it any wonder that there is so little preaching on the mission field because there is so little preaching in sending churches? Uh, Preaching has become devalued at home, and no wonder that it is devalued on the mission field. We are sending everything and everyone except preachers of the Word of God, expositors, theological expositors, exegetical expositors who proclaim the Word of God. So what made preaching in the early church on the mission field so powerful? Well, number one, it was the power of the Holy Spirit that rested upon and resided within the apostles as they stood up to preach. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit upon the listeners. But from a human perspective, it was the kind of powerful preaching that they brought that should capture our attention. It wasn't just that there was preaching. It was that there was a certain kind of preaching. In one sense today, we don't need more preaching. We probably need less preaching because there's so much bad preaching going on. There is a certain kind of preaching that is so desperately needed to be recovered, and we find it in these sermons in the book of Acts. If you want to learn how to preach, read the book of Acts and catch the fire of the apostles. And what we have in Acts 13 is the first missionary sermon recorded in Scripture, preached by the Apostle Paul. And before we look at this, I'm going to put the application right now. I want to tell you how this sermon should affect you, hopefully to tune your ear to listen to what we will have to say. Number one, as a result of what we're going to look at, you need to highly esteem preaching and preachers. Parents, you need to pray that God will raise up your sons to be preachers. God had only one son, and He made him a preacher. And He trained preachers. And at the end of His ministry, He sent them out to preach. You need to highly esteem the office of preaching, the ministry of preaching, and your spiritual life will grow no further than you're sitting under a steady diet of the preaching of the Word of God. The Puritans used to say, if you had one hour and could use it in one of two ways, one, to sit at home by yourself and read your own Bible for an hour, or to come to church and sit under the preaching of a Spirit-filled man who is well-equipped and well-prepared to preach the Word of God, which one of those two would bring the greatest spiritual good to your soul? 
The Puritans said, it is to sit under the preaching of the Word of God where a man has spent 20 hours digging into that text, excavating the gold and the silver out of this passage, setting it before you so it is clearly seen, bringing it with penetrating application to your life in such a way that you are being sanctified and transformed. We need to highly esteem preaching and preachers. Second, we need to prayerfully consider, is God calling you to step out of your present employment and to answer His call to preach the Word of God? Because that's what we need, not only in the church in America, that is what we need on the mission field, men who will preach like we see in the book of Acts. Third, you need to carefully critique how your missions uh, agencies that you support, how they are closely connected to preachers and preaching. Because every missionary endeavor must ultimately lead to the pinnacle, to the high mark of missionary endeavor, the preaching of the Word of God and the planting of churches. If a missions organization is not ultimately leading to and being merely a means to the preaching of the Word and the planting of churches, it is a dead-end street. And fourth and finally, you need to support preaching. And you need to support preachers. You need to support them with your encouragement, You have no idea what a demanding task that it is. It doesn't take much of a man to be a preacher. It just takes all there is of him. You need to support him with your prayers. You need to support him with your gifts and your financial support. You are investing in God's chosen means and God's chosen messenger when you come alongside a gospel preacher to help him carry out God's work. You are working in tandem with God. Now, as we look at this sermon, I want to make this observation that in all the sermons of the book of Acts, there are five primary pillars that uphold their preaching, that run through their preaching. In some of these sermons, you'll see three of the five. In some of these sermons, you'll see four of the five or two of the five. In this particular sermon, we have all five. Here are the essential elements of the apostolic preaching on the mission field, the apostolic preaching of the gospel. So I want to start with the first and just walk through this sermon and set before you now the five essential marks of apostolic preaching of the gospel. Number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The apostles most often began their sermons in the New Testament by tracing the listener through the path of the Old Testament to show them that everything was leading up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 
into this world. In fact, the Old Testament was a, a major highway laid by God to prepare for the coming of His Son in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 16, Paul stood up, and by the way, that's the way a preacher preaches. He stands up like a man. He's not sitting on a stool, and he's not pacing around like a peacock. He is standing like a man and motioning with his hands, commanding gestures, a commanding stance, and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He commanded their attention. People ask me, do I ever get nervous before I preach? And the answer is no, I would be nervous if I could not preach, and I would be nervous if people did not listen. So notice what he says beginning in verse 17. In verse 17 to verse 23, I'm going to have to uh, hydroplane my way through this, but what Paul is doing is showing that Christianity is not a philosophical religion. It is a historical religion. It's not conceived in someone's mind, such as uh, Confucius or or Buddha, but it is rooted and grounded in history, in time-space dimension history. The other thing that I want you to note as we go through this is how God-centered verses 17 to 23 are. And I would encourage you, I've already done this, I've taken out a ballpoint pen and just drawn a circle around every time I see God, every time I see He, every time I see I when it refers to God, this sermon is dripping with God. It's not dripping with the culture. It's not dripping with the times. It is dripping with ancient times. It is dripping with God, 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 God. Paul is a big God preacher. He is what John Piper calls an exaltational expositor. The preacher must be always exalting the greatness, the grandeur, and the glory of God. You have nothing greater to say than God. And what people desperately need is God in your preaching. So in verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Stop right there. He, Paul begins his sermon with the doctrine of sovereign election on the mission field, preaching to unbelievers, just like Peter did on the day of Pentecost, that Jesus was crucified according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and he concludes it with as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. That's where Paul begins, with the absolute unrivaled sovereignty of Almighty God over the eternal destinies of all men and over the course of human history. I mean, this is just Psalm 96. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That's the heart of our message, the supreme authority of God. So verse 17 the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, referring to the patriarchs, and began with Abraham, and this is a reference to chose him for salvation. A Abraham was living in the Ur of Chaldees. He was a moon worshiper. He was a, 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 a pagan 
um, worshiper lost in darkness and had no knowledge of God, and it was God who pulled him like a brand out of the fire and chose him for himself. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great. Who did? God did during their stay in the land of Egypt. He made them great in numbers, and with an uplifted hand, He led them out from it. It was God who was the author of the, of, the, of the Exodus. It was God who parted the Red Seas. It was God who fed them uh, manna by day. It was God who defeated their enemies. It was God who steered them finally into the promised land. It was all God. Verse 18, for a period of about 40 years, He, referring to God, put up with them in the, patient, uh, in the wilderness. God was so long-suffering. He was slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness towards His own people. But it is God acting in human history. Verse 19, when He had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. Who did it? God did it. The battle belonged to the Lord. It was God who was the mighty victorious warrior who went before His people and subdued their enemies in the land of Canaan. And He, referring to God, distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. It was God who did this. Verse 20, after these things, He, God, gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. It was God who was doing this. It was God who raised up. Saul, according to their desires. Verse 22, after he, God, had removed him, Saul, it was God who raised him up, put him on his throne. It was God who impeached him and brought him back down. He, God, raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he, God, also testified and said, I, God, have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my, God's heart, who will do all my will. This sermon just drips with God. It is saturated with God. Man is on the side stage. God is in the spotlight. And all of the attention is being directed to God. God is directing human history. And God is raising up according to His sovereign will. Verse 23, from the descendants of this man, referring to David, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. You know who the forgotten member of the Trinity is? It is God the Father. Rightly so, we preach Christ and Him crucified. And over these last decades, the ministry of the Holy Spirit has been, has been greatly highlighted. But the one who has been forgotten is the one who is the architect of everything, the one who is the author of the eternal decree, the author of the gospel, the one who sent Jesus, and the one who is sending the Holy Spirit. It is God the Father. But here in this sermon, God the Father assumes His rightful place in this sermon. God the Father is the infinite 
fountain from which everything is flowing in the entire universe. So God is directing all of human history to this climactic moment at the end of verse 23 as God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It is God now sending His Son on the mission of salvation to be the Savior. You know what the word Savior means? It means the deliverer from destruction. It means the rescuer from ruin. And you ask the question, what do we need to be saved from? And the answer is God. Every man must be saved, delivered, rescued from the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. You don't need to be saved from loneliness. You don't need to be saved from singleness. You don't need to be saved from a bad job. You need to be saved from the coming wrath of God upon sin. And there is only one who can save from God, and that is God Himself. And in the sending of His Son, the mercy and grace of God triumphs over the judgment and the wrath of God. Salvation is from God, through God, from God, for God. That is what salvation is. And there is only one Savior. And that is the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Lord Jesus Christ. So God has directed all of human history from creation to the choosing of Abraham to be the father of the great nation to this moment when He would send His Son, Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time. Verse 24, after John, referring to John the Baptist, had proclaimed before His coming, and by the way, to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, God sent a preacher, an old-fashioned preacher, who preached, hell's hot, heaven's sweet, sin's black or white, judgment is sure, and Jesus saves. God didn't send a puppet ministry to prepare the coming of the Lord. He didn't send a flannel gram. He sent an old-fashioned preacher named John the Baptist to prepare the way for the coming of the greatest preacher who ever walked this earth, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He preached a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Verse 25, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to tie. What we see here 
in this first main heading. And it, was, it, it, it is in many of the other apostolic sermons is that Jesus is the culmination of human history, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that Jesus is the long and long-awaited one. Everything has led up to this one, Jesus Christ. And so as you and I send out preachers, and as we preach ourselves, we must send forth preachers who have this towering, transcendent view of God, that God is the sovereign over human history, that history is His story, that He is commanding the nations, He is raising up kings, even reprobate kings, and He is lowering kings, and He is directing the course of human history to its grand crescendo in the Son of God. That's the kind of preacher you want to get behind. That's the kind of preacher you want to support. That's the kind of preacher that you want to send. A God-centered, God-exalting preacher. Now, second, beginning in verse 26, the second main heading, Jesus was crucified for sinners. The apostles preached that God sent His Son into this world, not merely to be an example, though He was, not merely to be a teacher, though He was, not merely to reveal God to us, though He did, but He sent His Son into this world to go to an old rugged cross on Golgotha, there to be lifted up, to be crucified, to bear the sins of His people, to shed His blood, and to make the only atonement for our sins. So verse 26, brethren, and he's addressing fellow Jews when he says brethren. They're unconverted Jews, sons of Abraham, Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God. They, they were God-fearers, they just were not gospel believers at this point. The message of this salvation has been sent. Everything was about this message of salvation, which is in the gospel. And if you ask what is the gospel, the most succinct summary of the gospel, euangelion, which means glad tidings or good news, the heart of the gospel is the person and work in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sum and the substance of the gospel. He is the alpha and the omega of the gospel. If you want to witness to someone about the gospel, you need to make a beeline to the Lord Jesus Christ and speak of Christ, who is the Savior. In verse 27, he now begins to talk about this coming of Christ into this world. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither Him, referring to Christ, nor the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath. And these utterances of the prophets were all prophecies of the coming of Christ. 
beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15, and extending all the way down to the book of Malachi. These were all prophecies and types and pictures and foreshadowings of the coming of Christ, the entire sacrificial system, the high priest and the sacrifice made, the intercession, the day of atonement, the scapegoat, uh, the sin offering. It all was just but a visual picture of the person and work and terms of Christ. And as they sat there and heard the utterances of the prophets, they they did not recognize Christ, and they did not recognize that even their rejection of Christ and their condemnation of Christ was fulfilling the prophets who said that He would be rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who grew up before us like a tender shoot. All of our sins were laid upon Him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. Their eyes were blind. Their ears were deaf. Verse 28, And though they found no ground for putting Him to death, of course they did not. He he was the sinless Son of God. Even the demons recognized He is the Holy One of, of Israel. Pilate said, I find no fault in Him. They asked Pilate that He be executed. And this word executed is a very strong Greek word, and it means to be demolished. It, it means to be destroyed. It's referring to a public, gruesome, violent execution death on a cross. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that had been written concerning Him, (laughs) every nail they drove into His hands, every, every thorn was crushed into His brow, every mistreatment that they inflicted upon Him, the parting of His garments, the very words that He would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was all in fulfillment of prophecy that was recorded throughout the annals of Old Testament Scripture. And so when they had carried out all that was written concerning Him, down to the very most minute detail, and by the way, these prophecies were carried out not by Jesus, not, not only by Jesus' own followers, but by His enemies who had the most to lose by their fulfillment. It, it shows that even the reprobate is in the hand of God to carry out God's eternal purpose and plan. And so they preached the cross. All of the apostles preached the cross. You're not a preacher if you don't preach the cross. Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. He would say in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, for we determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They preached His sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, sin-pardoning, righteousness-securing death upon the cross. Acts 4, verse 12, when Peter stood before the Sanhedrin, Peter said, there is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They were bold as a lion. 
as they preached the cross. Spurgeon said, no preacher preaches so powerfully as when he stands at the foot of the cross and proclaims the death of Jesus Christ, who was lifted up to die in the place of hell-bound guilty sinners. Him who knew no sin God made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, the great exchange of the cross, the worst about you and me, our sin, transferred to Christ, the best about Christ, His perfect righteousness, transferred to us. It is the great exchange by the invisible hand of God at Calvary. 1 Peter 2, 24, He bore our sins in His body upon the tree. 1 Peter 1, verse 18, you've been redeemed not with corruptible things inherited from your futile way of life, but with blood, precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. We have been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these apostles were proclaiming and, and preaching. Verse 32, and we preach to you. Please, note, they didn't share. They preached. They heralded. They declared. They announced. That's what preachers do. Listen, if you're a barber and you don't cut hair, you're not a barber. If you're a taxi cab driver and you don't drive a car, you're not a taxi cab driver. And if you're a preacher, but you don't, do not preach, you're just a life coach. You're just in the way. God has called men to preach. And that is what He says in verse 32, and, and we preached, we preached to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that there would be a deliverer, that there would be a Savior who would come from the loins of David, who would come from the loins of Abraham, who would come into this world on a mission of, of redemption and salvation. And he now gives cross-references. Great preachers show that the whole rest of the Bible affirms and supports what I am saying right here, that the whole Bible speaks with one voice. And so you go to cross-references, uh, just like the wings of an airplane upholding the whole plane. So these cross-references going out in every direction, upholding the, the truth of what is being preached. So verse 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that He raised up Jesus. I mean, there, there's power just even in saying the name Jesus which means Jehovah saves. He was God in human flesh come to save, as it is also written in the second Psalm. And he now quotes Psalm 2, you are my son today, I have begotten you. It's referring here to the resurrection, and it's referring to the incarnation. And it is showing that the earth metaphorically, was like a mother's womb, and when he was raised from the dead, metaphorically, it was as though he was begotten 
and came forth from the earth to be alive. Verse 34, as for the fact that He raised Him, referring to Jesus, He, God the Father, raised up Him, God the Son. This is a Trinitarian sermon from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way, and he now quotes Isaiah 55 and verse 3, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Those, those promised blessings that were given to David in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 14, in Psalm 89, that they would come through David from God and be realized in the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a euphemism for death, because believers, it's as though our body is, is just laid in the grave, and when we look at the body, it's as though we are asleep. But the spirit, the real person, goes immediately into the presence of God. What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. 2 Corinthians 5 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So his body fell asleep. His soul did not fall asleep. His soul was never more alive than two seconds after he died as he awakened in the very presence of God. And David was at the end of verse 36 was laid away, was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. This shows that Psalm 16 was not talking about David. Ultimately, because David's body is still in the grave and it is decayed down to only the bones remain. No, Psalm 16, which speaks of one who will awaken in the presence of God speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 37, but He, Christ, whom God raised, did not undergo decay. What we see here is that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Second, Christ was crucified, and I actually skip quickly because I'm looking at this clock, I just realized Christ was raised from the dead. We are saved by the cross. The resurrection is the validation that the death of Christ was sufficient to atone for our sins and that God the Father has accepted the death of Christ on our behalf as payment in full for the debt that we have incurred for our sins. And so not only they preach the cross, but they preach the resurrection, and that is in verse 29 and in verse 30, and it was so certain in verse 31 that He appeared to those who came with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that He appeared to as many as 500 people at one time. Most of those are still alive at the time of this preaching, and it would only have taken just one of those persons to step forward to say the whole thing is a hoax, or for someone to produce the body, it would have shut down Christianity in a heartbeat. But there was no body 
to, to be presented and paraded down the streets of Jerusalem because the body of Christ is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And the witnesses spoke veracity and truth and were willing, certainly with the apostles, to die a martyr's death because they knew that Christ had been raised from the dead. A man may live for a, die, a lie, but he will not die for a lie. And to a man, shoulder to shoulder, these, these apostolic preachers preached the resurrection even if it meant their own martyrdom. Fourth, in verses 38 and 39, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. So not only was He crucified, and not only was He raised, but He offers forgiveness of sin. Verse 38, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren… By the way, that's the way a preacher talks. He's not standing up there stroking his chin and saying, well, it seems to me. You know, I just had this thought driving to church today. No. He says, let it be known to you that through Him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Every person in the entire history of the world needs the forgiveness of their sins. Our soul is stained with sin. The result of our sin is the curse of the law, which is death. The result of our sin is it places us under the righteous judgment of God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We desperately need for our sins to be forgiven, and there is only one way for our sins to be removed from us, and that is for our sins to be taken off of us and to be placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was our scapegoat, and our sins now through the, through, through the death of Christ are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. You can measure the North Pole from the South Pole, but you cannot measure the east from the west. When you turn that globe, the east keeps going further away as the west is chasing after it. That's how far God has removed our sins from us. He has taken our sin and placed them behind His back where He can see them no more. The Bible says He has taken our sins and buried them in the depths of the sea, never to be recovered again. The Bible says that He, has, he can remember our sins no more. God said through the prophet Isaiah, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. You and I must have the forgiveness of our sins, or we will suffer eternal damnation in the flames of hell forever. And it is Jesus Christ alone who offers us the forgiveness of sins when we put our faith and trust in Him. 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This is what preachers preach, not how to have a better life, not, not how to, to get along better with, not how to have a better vacation. 
how you may have the forgiveness of your sins before a holy God in heaven. The last thing that I want you to see is in verse 40 and 41. This is the fifth and final mark of Paul's preaching on the mission field. It's very simply this, judgment is coming. Verse 40, therefore take heed. It's a Greek word. It means look on this carefully, pay close attention to this. Do not turn away from hearing this. Take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And the imagery here is almost being overswept with a tsunami of what God is sending if you do not receive His forgiveness. And what is coming is an enormous wave of wrath and vengeance and fury. We live on a planet guilty of cosmic treason against the Creator, the Holy God of heaven, and we, there, is, there is coming a day when God will settle all of His accounts. And so in verse 41, he quotes from Habakkuk 1, verse 5, behold you scoffers. That, that's what Paul is implying that those unconverted listeners are, you, you're but scoffers, and marvel be astonished, be amazed at this, and perish under an ocean of the outpouring of the fierce judgment of God if you refuse His Son and if you refuse the free offer of forgiveness, you will perish eternally forever in a real place called hell a place of the lake of fire and brimstone with the weeping and the, 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 the gnashing of teeth, the place where the worm does not die, that place of, of outer darkness, that place where the Lamb is present to inflict the wrath Himself upon the unbelieving. He says in verse 41, and I close, for I, God is the speaker, I am accomplishing a work in your, in your days. In other words, right now there is an imminent looming danger that is overshadowing your life, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you, and what they would never believe is their desperate need for the forgiveness of sins and the imminent coming of the divine wrath of God upon those who die in their sins. Goodness, what a preacher Paul was. And what preaching like this we so desperately need today. And this threats of judgment only causes the love of God to shine all the brighter. This message of wrath is like the black velvet backdrop upon which God places the diamond of His saving grace upon, and it is the black velvet backdrop that causes the diamond to shine 
all the more brightly. If all you do is preach the love of God, but never preach the wrath of God and the judgment of God, you are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are preaching a, a, you, you are a pretender, and you are preaching a, a, a message that damns. You must be saved from God. And that is what Paul is preaching. And it is all in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has freely offered to everyone here today, and there are still those among us here today who have never made the decision to commit your life to Jesus Christ. This is a step of faith that everyone here today must take. And even as I have preached this message, you have heard the truth about Jesus who was sent into this world by the Father to go to the cross, to die in the place of sinners, to provide the only way of salvation. You have no alternative way to escape what is coming. And God has vindicated and validated and authenticated the death of Christ for sinners by raising Christ from the dead. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He offers to you the forgiveness, the pardon, the release from all of your sins. And if you would believe in Jesus Christ this very moment, He would apply the blood of Christ to you, and He would wash you and cleanse you and from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet and present you faultlessly before the Father in heaven. This Jesus who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who bore our sins on the cross, who was raised from the dead, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, is the only Savior of sinners. And if you have never taken this step of faith, if you have never, as an act of your will, made this decision to cross the line and to enter through the narrow gate, I call you this moment to leave your sin behind, to leave the world system behind, to, to come to Christ by faith and entrust your soul and your life to Christ. Your spouse cannot make this decision for you. Your, your friends cannot make this decision for you. Your parents cannot make this decision for you. Even God cannot make this decision. God, by His grace, will enable you to do this, but you must come to the place where you entrust, commit, surrender your life, your soul to King Jesus and submit to His authority and to come under His Lordship. And Jesus says, Him who comes unto Me, I will in no wise cast out. He loves to gather in sinners to Himself. He loves to receive them and take them to the Father. He loves to wash away sin. He loves to bestow forgiveness upon those who are unworthy and who are undeserving. You may say, you don't know how great my sin is. You don't know how marred my past is. You don't know how great is His grace and how great is His mercy and how great is His love. Where sin does abound, grace does much more 
abound. Just come to Christ by the commitment of faith, and He will take you in and gather you in. Repent of your sins. Turn to the Savior, and He will receive you to Himself. Otherwise, you will stand in the judgment without an advocate, and the books will be opened, and every sin you have ever committed in the entirety of your life, going back to your childhood, middle school, high school, college, military service, God has kept in impeccable books and records. Skeletons will come dancing out of closets on that last day. Sins that you have long since forgotten are permanently recorded in the books of God, and you will face the record so much sin, so much judgment, so much judgment, so much damnation. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. Do you understand the offer that is being made to you right now, this very moment? And you may never hear the gospel so clearly, plainly presented to you if you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. I plead with you, commit your life to Christ. You have no other hope You have no other way of salvation. You are perishing, and you will perish eternally without Christ. But He has swung open the gates of paradise this very moment, and He is ready to receive you into His loving, gracious arms if you will but repent of your sin and humbly come to Him by faith and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, the sinner. He will say to you, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. May this be your day to enter into the kingdom of God through the narrow gate that alone leads to life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, what a joy it is to our hearts to hear the Apostle Paul preach the Word and pour out his soul as he preaches Christ and Him crucified, raised, offering forgiveness of sin to the worst of sinners and warning of a final judgment on the last day. Father, may this be a day of salvation for so many who are here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.